Hello and welcome to episode 289 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time champion, Storm. <laughs> you said that so weird. Storm? <laughs> <laughs> I said it as if it was the the character, Storm. Uh, and I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. There it is. Home of the three and eight Seattle Seahawks. Well, it's been another week in Seattle sports on the plus side. No coaches got fired that I know know of in the past week. So oh, there you go. Is that the plus side? <laughs> got oh, different gonna... definitions of plus side here. Got a spicy take coming later in the pod, I guess. Well, it was a winning weekend for our Pacific Northwest friends. Not not for the University of Oregon, for the record. That was great. Uh for our friends in Portland Trailblazers who got a victory on Saturday night over the Philadelphia 76ers with us in attendance. Your first Blazers game since 2019? Is that when they uh is that when they beat the Thunder in the playoffs? Yes. Yes, correct then. So to celebrate that trip, hello and the Blazers, going trying for the first time the Deschutes Rip City Lager. Uh, coined during the Trailblazers' first season by legendary broadcaster Bill Shonley, Rip City has become synonymous with Portland's home team and really the city in general. Cheers to Rip City with this light lemony lager that's crisp and crushable. Portland, Oregon did the thing for us. Uh, in this game that we went to, I mean, I, I would say it was kind of interesting. And maybe this is the maybe this is a, a key theme. I'm just going to say throughout the Pacific Northwest, I'm going to guess that this is not the case in the big house uh, and other places around the country. Kind of, kind of a sleepy crowd there for the Blazers. Um, Yes. I feel like Northwest sports is just like kind of sleepy in general, except for that one weekend of Mariners baseball. And there's, there's an exception. We're going to talk about it in a a few minutes here. Oh God. Uh, (laughs) Oh no, the disgust. But, but, on this night, Dame goes for 39, I want to say. Didn't quite get to 40. Are you ready to admit that Dame is back? <laughs> he looked very back in this game, yes. They did the exciting. MVP chance at the end of the game, and I was like, I, I, let's just cool off for a second here. Uh, he was named Western Conference Player of the Week. We can toast to that. Wow. So there you go. I'm toasting wow. with my Wesley Matthews glass here, leftover still from the 2013-2014-15 Blazers season. I personally am toasting to the haters, most notably ESPN's Kevin Pelton, the haters <laughs> of Dave Lillard. I wrote a story for ESPN Plus that indicated his shooting slump was likely to be temporary. Oh, okay. What I say in offline conversations, sometimes the takes are a little too hot. Maybe intentionally so, just for fun. Uh, do you want to talk about the the any other takeaways from this trip? Uh, maybe highlighted by heading down to Lake Oswego to visit Phil's Donuts. I feel like my opinion on donuts has really been made pretty clear oh, on this has. podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Phil's Donuts did not change my opinion of donuts. There you go. Donuts still great. 
But you didn't have anything to say about them specifically? Uh, not really. They're good donuts. Okay. Any other takeaways from your Moda Center experience? No. <laughs> Dynamite drop in, Monty. I don't know. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I'm, building, I'm building up to something else in a second. Okay. By the way, we did not acknowledge off the top here that it's the, uh, the, the Doug, Doug Baldwin, Doug Baldwin edition, edition yes. of the song. Coincidentally, for reasons that will become clear during the UW football section, I listened today to part of episode 189 a little less than two years ago, a wow. much happier time we're, in we're, Seattle sports. We're remembering previous Pelton cast episodes? <laughs> Let's remember some I've been, Pelton cast. I've been pushing for this for so long, and we're finally doing it. Thank you. <laughs> we're re-recording our version of the Pelton cast. <laughs> Or maybe Taylor's version. I don't know. <laughs> One other toast this week is to UW men's soccer, which advanced to the Sweet 16 with a 3-1 win Sunday over Portland. Obviously. That's right. Take that, Portland. We hate you. There it is. There it is. <laughs> uh, Dylan Tevez scored all three goals as the Huskies took a 2-0 lead before conceding off a penalty rebound and then got that final goal from Tevez to produce the uh, ultimate margin. UW outshot the Pilots 12-1. In this game, it's the first hat trick of Tevez's career as the Huskies advance to host number 15 seed Indiana on Saturday at 5 p.m. in the biggest sporty event on UW's campus this weekend. We're going to like we're going to spend the weekend at the um, <clears throat> hydroplane races in Madison, Indiana. <laughs> Have a great time and then come back and crush Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> something like that the ricotta baby <laughs> oh lord so obviously coming up this week thanksgiving we've we'll link as usual it per tradition the classic pelton cast episode where friend of the pod nate duncan came on to do our thanksgiving food rankings but uh you said you had some thanksgiving food thoughts you wanted to share well, it's very interesting. So uh, on those very Thanksgiving rankings, which I really appreciate that you're linking that again for like the fifth straight year. Oh, it never goes out of style. It, well, so my question is related to that. And I'm curious. I, do, you, I be, do you think I, it went out of style? I don't think it out of, went out of style. I've been thinking through uh, maybe trying a new approach to our number one item of Thanksgiving this year. That being gravy. I, that being gravy. And I think all three of us, I think it was a unanimous number one. Clean sweep. It's kind of wild. It's like gravy. <laughs> it's kind of a hilarious clean sweep. But so, uh, right. Gravy, as I understand, or as I've been doing in the past, I've taken the drippings from the turkey and turned that into a gravy, usually by adding flour. Right. Yeah. I've been I've been toying with thinking about and I'm curious for any Thanksgiving feedback from the listener if anybody has perfected a mostly or all drippings gravy. Because I I don't know if we need like a a a thick creamy gravy like that. To me, the real value of the gravy is moistening everything around it. Right? And so you don't want it to be too thick. Well, can we get away with a just drippings, just drippings, not even gravy necessarily. This is turkey drippings. Very, very flavorful because sometimes when, when you add the flour and everything else, it gets a little bit 
a little watered down, in my opinion. It gets a little bland at that point. So could we have a flavorful gravy made just from the drippings? And I'm curious if anybody else has ever perfected that. You seem skeptical about this. I mean, I think you need, and this harkens back to our teriyaki search, you need a certain degree of viscosity there. I don't know if you do need a certain degree of viscosity. That's more like if it's a sauce, right? But what is the value? There's, I suppose there's two different ways that you approach gravy. Because to me, like I, I can see it, right? You, you, you make the potatoes, you make the little like, uh, uh, you, you scoop out the little uh, uh, crater lake on top and dump in the gravy, right? But it's a, it's a, a caldera. And, but you could also use it to, it, it's basically just adding some moistness, right? The turkey should already be moist on its own. Adding some moistness and a little bit of flavor to the turkey, to the potatoes, to things like that, rather than something that is like another layer on top of it, something that enhances the flavor from those items on their own. First off, I am uncomfortable with the number of times you're saying moist in this conversation. Second off, I Again, it's got to stand on its own, though. You don't want it to just completely go into whatever, you know, the potatoes or the turkey. You want it to have some of its own texture as well. There's a texture aspect of this in addition to a flavor aspect. I'm willing to, I want to hear any and all gravy ideas. I want to hear every, if people feel like if they're confident in their gravy, I want to hear about it. Right, because I'm going into this Thanksgiving thinking to myself that maybe we could rethink gravy completely. Well, we're looking for your gravy feedback clearly at PeltonCast on Twitter, in the Instagram DMs, or PeltonCast at gmail.com with the at listener Nate, email. At Nate, Nate Duncan. <laughs> at Nate Duncan NBA. Oh, sorry. Some other guy named Nate Duncan is going to be annoyed if he gets a bunch of gravy tweets, which sure. fortunately he won't. But you understand what I'm saying? This is the number one item, and can we do it even better than we've been doing it? I mean, to me, if it's the number one item, how much do you want to mess around with it and risk making it worse? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I'm curious about this kind of feedback. I'll report back on what we do after. And and you can, as as an objective observer who ate the gravy, report back on what you think about it as well. I mean, the bad news is I'm not an objective observer. I'm biased against you. <laughs> but you're not biased against gravy. Oh, absolutely not. I'm biased in favor of gravy. So. Clearly. Anyway, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this, about how to approach the gravy. I've done no research. Just thinking. <laughs> it's a thought experiment at this point. I've, I've had some, uh, some chats, some gravy chats. But... Well, that's good because there is nothing on the internet about food. You're not going to find any useful information whatsoever. No one has ever attempted anything or put it on a video. None of those things. Mm-hmm. So why would you need to do that? That's why for most information, I go to the Pelton Cast listener. <laughs> Maybe you should go to the Pelton Cast listener for some fantasy advice this year. Oh my God. This is fucking bullshit, by the way. <laughs> you schedule these drafts when I personally was not mentally capable of having these drafts. I ended up having to auto-draft two both of the Pelton Cast fantasy drafts. I scheduled these drafts before the season. Would you like to, me to have scheduled them in like week seven or eight? Because was more it, it snuck up on schedule? me. It snuck up on me when you were having them. <laughs> and second off, sent out an email to everyone asking for their their availability, and you responded to that email. 
and times said changed. times that I gave you. Times changed. I'm, I'm in a fast-paced work environment, right? <laughs> I mean, you did have, yes, you had you had an outside exigency. Things, things, things changed very quickly for me. So I couldn't, I couldn't draft. And then I. My teams are both eight and three in both Pelton cast leagues. Are you kidding me? I had the highest score in both leagues this week. You have Jonathan Taylor Thomas on your team. I have Jonathan Taylor on one of my two teams. He's on two of my three teams, but one of my two Pelton cast teams. He's also in the ghost league that uh, I'm feeling pretty good about this year. Ghost, ghost ship league. I'm somehow going to lose in the final. Ghost ghost plane league. Uh, (laughs) The the other one, I did not have Jonathan Taylor. It was just the the Patriots defense highlighted a strong team effort in that league. (laughs) Every decision I've, fantasy decision I've made this year has been wrong. Well, then the opposite of every fantasy decision you've made would be right. It's the Costanza logic. Or should we talk about the other two sporting events I attended this weekend? Sure. Because at long last, I made it to Climate Pledge Arena for Kraken Games and actually multiple games because it was two in three days. I went both Friday and Sunday night. Uh, Friday night, uh, saw the team fall behind 7 nothing before scoring three times in the third period. They were down 2 nothing by the time I got to my seat oh my because God. I was a little late. So it was, it was that kind of night, and yet still a fun experience, I would say, particularly when they did score those goals in the third period. And it was interesting on Sunday to hear Philip Grubauer like, mention that post-game is something that stood out, like how into it the fans still were when the team scored and how As supportive they were. As he was giving up made. goals. <laughs> Well, he didn't Phil, start that Philip one. Philip Grubauer, he was like, as I keep giving up goals, the fans keep cheering. I don't know what's going on. He didn't start that one. Chris Rieger started that one, then was pulled midway through the second period in favor of Grubauer, who did allow, I think, three more goals. <laughs> he's, he's like, it's already 4 nothing. Look, there's only so much you're going to do at that point. I, just I, love, I can't love blame the Grubauer. Idea that, uh, you would point to Philip Grubauer, who's basically been the scapegoat for the entire season for the crack, and maybe rightfully so. That he's but like maybe yeah, a the, little bit unfairly. The fans are still really into it as I repeatedly give up goals. He didn't put it that way. <laughs> but it was still a great atmosphere in the third period, like of that game. We I got all everything I needed in terms of I the think goals. These fans might not know what the point of hockey is. <laughs> we know what the point of hockey is. There was a there was a couple of fans directly behind me who just kept talking about like Look, we're just here for the atmosphere. We've saw ten we saw ten goals. We're blessed. I wish they would have said hashtag blessed specifically. That would have been that would have been completed it. That was like me talking about how great of an experience it was to be at the University of Washington <laughs> after the really UCLA is, yes. game. Give it three weeks, people. Watch a couple of games in rainstorms and see what you say. Well, well wait until you have needed... frostbite in your toes still. They Not only the needed to game. give it two days because it was a big turnaround on Sunday against the Washington Capitals who came in on the fourth game in five nights on this road trip. Uh, maybe not quite at full strength, but uh, uh, despite a lot of Ovechkin in the third period and some tense moments, uh, a power play for the Capitals with a 4-2 lead for the Kraken. They got the em- held on, got the empty net goal to make it 5-2. Uh, I, I'm pleased to say is a lifelong Kraken fan. I was there for the best win in franchise history. Seen the highs and the lows just within this one weekend. 
Well, whoop de fucking do for you. Congrats. I don't understand why you're so angry. I'm angry at you for being... I was at the Seahawks game on Sunday. Okay, why do you fair. think I'm angry? That's fair. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to two Jody Allen dubs in a row, baby. Saturday night in Portland, Sunday day in Seattle. And then you're like, oh, oh, oh saw the crack and win a game. You know what I saw? <laughs> the darkness? I saw more than the darkness. <laughs> We were full on. We were in the the deepest, darkest depths of the ocean, right? We were in the the midnight zone. Like the we're beyond the darkness. But happy that you had a nice time. You're like, oh, I I didn't even see that pass interference. I was traveling to the Kraken game at the time. No, I, I like, did see it. I said it was. Oh, I saw I, it on my phone. Oh, I could I could barely even see it. I was too busy watching the Kraken. I just cheer on Philip Grubauer no matter what happens. <laughs> Again, I do not understand this particular take. The take is that you weren't there. Like, good for you that you saw a game. You haven't seen anything, though. You've seen nothing. These eyes have seen things. <laughs> you know how many Seahawks games I've been to this year? You know how many Husky games I've been to this year? I'm not as many as me. I know Husky football <laughs> games. I know that much. <laughs> You've actually been to as many Seahawks wins as the I have, The sports right? are so bad, I'm ending gravy forever. Wow. You, you've been to as many Seahawks wins as I have this season in the two games I went to, right? You wonder why I'm like this? <laughs> well, you just don't need to take this out on the Kraken. I'm taking it out on you, not the Kraken. I... And a little bit on the Kraken, because this is still the Kraken's fault. Okay, so this is my favorite. Are we going to get into this? As, there's broad support at this point for the Chris Martin curse. We're going, we're going. It's not... Uh... Chris Martin. So what I really appreciate is I love all the different types of curses. This could be nobody is disputing about whether it's a curse or not. Oh, of course. Everybody Seattle agrees. Sports immediately just cratered as soon as the Kraken started playing games. Now, I believe there are four contenders for the curse at this point. Okay. The first contender being, and I would love to hear if there were any more. The first contender being the most obvious one, in my opinion. The Kraken. <laughs> since, since the Kraken started playing, I, I believe even preseason games is when we can pinpoint it, is when things started going south. But official games, even worse, right? Things have gotten ugly at that point for all the rest of Seattle sports. I mean, the uh, UW's football coach got fired midseason. It was just like one of the most shocking outcomes. If you would have said that when the Kraken started, that Jimmy Lake would be fired before the end of the year, you, nobody would have believed this, right? I I listened to that podcast I told you from two years ago. My Jimmy Lake excitement was at a crescendo at that point. <laughs> if you would have told me at that point he was going to be fired in 100 podcast episodes, I never would have believed 100 it. podcast episodes? He even like had a pretty good season. In the like COVID season and still was fired. That's how powerful this curse is. So we've got the Kraken. Number one. Number two, the second show that happened, the second the second ticketed event at the Climate official debut. We have Coldplay. I don't want to just blame Chris Martin. I think it's all of Coldplay. Oh, that's fair. I don't know any of the other members of Coldplay, but yes. I don't they know. They share in the blame. But they share in the blame. It's it's a it's the whole the whole band. We've got Chris, Chris Martin's just the face of the blame. The Foo Fighters. This was one that I didn't expect. 
<laughs> saying saying that Dave Grohl took so much talent and personally their cover of Darling Nikki, I don't question it. Maybe the curse is real, but that happened long ago. And then we also have the Macklemore banner curse. Yes. Because you look up in those rafters and there's a fucking Metropolitan's Championship. Like, really, we are truly on the darkest timeline. Maybe maybe the Macklemore banner would also have us on the darkest timeline. This was the banner that held the 1979 Championship banner. And we're putting up a banner in our second game for a faux championship that happened in 1919. Like, what are we doing here, 1917, people? For the 1917? Right? Do you, like, I see that, those banners, and I'm just like, people, like, are we being honest with ourselves right now? We're doing this. We're going to a team that is putting up a banner in this arena for a championship in what league? Uh, I forget what the name, maybe the PCHL, perhaps? For a PCHL championship for a team. Well, it was the Stanley Cup, though. That's the point. Oh, okay. They won that league, and then they played the winner of another league for the Stanley Cup. It's like, if you didn't care, there were Thunderbirds banners up there. Just because there's a professional hockey team, we need to go back and be like, yeah, this Metropolitans banner, we're cheering for this. Not a single person there ever saw the Metropolitans, cared for the Metropolitans at all. It is not part of our hockey history. I'm sorry. So the Macklemore banners, you and I were at the Macklemore shows at the very least, right? It's true. Like there were people, there were people in that building, probably every single game who were at those Macklemore shows who have some sort of experience with it. That banner is more important to the history of hockey, to that arena, to that space in the city of Seattle. And it is nowhere to be seen. It's more important to the history of hockey. Maybe if Macklemore started a hockey store. (laughs) But yes, it's possible that the, cur- the curse will not be lifted until the Macklemore banner is lifted, too. They don't care at all, though. People just keep cheering as they give up goals. doesn't even matter. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just trying to pinpoint exactly what the curse is. I really like that there's all sorts of different theories about the curse. I feel like the Kraken is the most... Uh, that's the most mainstream of the curse. most straightforward. That's, that's yeah. the one Seattle Times will be writing about in two to three weeks, right? Correct. A full feature on it. But there are additional ones. The Macklemore banner, to me, is maybe the most underrated. Oh, I, I mean, look, uh, there's a reason I posted about it on Instagram on Sunday. That was one of the like my goals in going to the game is I need to make sure I get a photo of the banners so I can get a Macklemore banner post on IG. <laughs> I don't think I saw that. You, you missed it? Mm-hmm. Just Did- like you missed that phantom pass interference like i mean i didn't miss it i'm just saying i couldn't determine whether it was a good call or not from my phone screen just as you couldn't determine whether it was a good call or not from the size of replay you saw it's a giant screen (laughs) it's a giant screen but it's a long ways away uh uh so i feel like i had a slightly different climate pledge experience arena experience than you did first off i wasn't in the club seats like you were you know <laughs> i was in among the general public uh but you didn't eat at the game and i ate both on friday and sunday sampling some of the new fare at climate pledge arena and the situation i went with through one of like the amazon you know you swipe your card at the beginning and then you just walk out uh that was it 
That was at Shaquille O'Neal's Big Chicken, which I, I had last I night. I think that sentence is the actual curse oh, that we're talking oh, no. about. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I had the Shaquille O'Neal's Big Chicken, uh, which was an extremely long wait. The entire intermission plus like the first five minutes of the second period. So I, I definitely missed two Kraken goals in that span. Wow. Which was a bummer. Best fans in the NHL. <laughs> I was there for the third period. <laughs> That was the important part. I missed two goals on Friday night. <laughs> missed two goals on Sunday night. How many goals did you see? Well, still still a lot on Friday. There were eight left. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it was a relatively low percentage. It was a higher percentage of the goals on Sunday night. But it, look, at that point, once you're standing in the Shaquille O'Neal's big chicken, like you can't just walk out at that point. You're pot committed to getting that chicken. I guess that's true. Once, uh, so, once you've seen a champ, a Stanley Cup championship in 1970, <laughs> who even needs to see these goals in 2021? Uh, so I had the chicken sandwich, and I thought it was pretty good for arena food. I, I you know, I, I my review of the Fuku chicken sandwich at Madison Square Bar- Garden was better than the list, Third Pelton Brothers Nate's review of it at T-Mobile Park, but I, I thought it was definitely in that same tier with Fuku as far as pretty quality arena food options although like i said with the way maybe not the way to go on friday uh did din tai fung where they they don't have the amazon version instead there's just like basically a bunch of self-checkout stations so that was actually quite fast the only like slowdown at all was to get an id check because i i was buying beer at that point uh and the din tai fung again solid for arena food now one thing i didn't really think about it until i got back to my seats which they are very narrow seats at Climate Pledge Arena. That is definitely a fair takeaway. Uh, the difficulty of eating dumplings in an arena seat as opposed to at a table, uh, maybe not the most ideal thing, I would say. Okay. The chicken sandwich was a little easier to eat. I just can't even. I don't. I'm so sick what? of sports. I'm so sick of sports in general. Do I need oh, to you, replace you, you just, as co-host of this podcast? You just... Can't even eat dumplings at the seats. I mean, <laughs> just think about this sentence. What? You can't eat dumplings at the hockey game? I didn't say you can't eat dumplings at the hockey game. Uh, <laughs> it's just difficult. <laughs> yeah. You know the the me with the two people on the bus. You're the person who I you're the went to the Kraken game on Sunday night, and I'm on the sad <laughs> side. Went to the Seahawks game on Sunday. <laughs> I really didn't imagine you were going to be so emotionally upset. You seemed to be hanging in there on Sunday when we talked after the game. When I was on the way to the Kraken game, I think the fact that the Kraken won really, really affected you, <laughs> or something. So, I'm yeah, really happy I mean, to hear you had a good time. <laughs> clearly, you are. It's nice that the team that you went to and enjoyed watching two times in a row has cursed every other sports team in the city of Seattle, except for <sighs> UW Men's Soccer, baby. Exactly, they're they're the one team overcoming the curse. Uh, the Kraken wrap up their homestand on Wednesday, hosting Carolina before heading out on the road for a uh, stretch. Uh, for a four-game road trip on the East Coast at Tampa Bay and Florida over the weekend, then Monday at Buffalo. 
before we next record the podcast. That win on Sunday snapped a six-game losing streak for the Kraken. So they were they were definitely cursed themselves. Yes. If the crack okay, so here's the question: If it's the Kraken who are also cursed, can it still be the Kraken curse? Did we talk about this last week? I think we may have discussed that offline. Okay. <laughs> if if the Kraken are also cursed, does that make it more likely to be the Coldplay curse or the Macklemore curse? Oh. Until they lift the banner, the curse won't be lifted. That's what I'm going the banner. With. Look, if ticket sales get brutal enough, they will hang that banner. (laughs) (laughs) If the team keeps playing like this after the three-year commitment that people had to make for season tickets, then that Macklemore banner is going up. Season four. (laughs) Coming in 2024, the Macklemore banner. (laughs) Mark your calendars. Well, mark your calendars for much before 2024. I'll be sure to send you a text. But the Sounders, after an extended break here, they last played on November 7th? Maybe the... Yeah, I think they last played on November 7th. It's been an extraordinarily long time. We're not talking baseball? Do we have baseball? You told me there was a Japanese player that the Mariners are pursuing? Seiya Suzuki has been posted. The Mariners definitely may have some interest in him, despite their depth in terms of outfield prospects. He shares a lot of traits in common with Ichiro in terms of well, he shares being a strong armed right fielder in common and, with Ichiro. But and, and offensively, shares he shares a hits lot in power. common with last names. Yes, yes. But I don't know if there's much of an update yet at this point. I also okay. don't want to get my hopes too far up because I know what happened the last time we did that with Shohei, which, by the way, was part of the worst week in Seattle sports history. Right? Oh, when the Mariners lost Shohei, I'm almost certain that was part of that week. The week that you said it was the best sport, the best week in Seattle sports history. Biggest. I said it was the biggest. <laughs> wow. Maybe... And that may have been part of it. Wow. And then they didn't get Shohei. So you're saying that this crack and curse is also <laughs> going to stop them from getting, what was the, what was the first name? Shayo? Uh, Seiya? Seiya? I, I, I haven't looked for, up for sure how to pronounce that. So I can't I can't believe that they all I'd forgotten about Shohei being part of it. Oh, he also wears number 51, by the way. So he's leaning into it for sure. Man, I mean, I feel like if you're leaning into it enough, you kind of got to sign with the Mariners also, right? Well, it's not his choice if he gets posted. Oh, it's just whoever. Yeah, because whoever uh, bids the most. Shohei had more experience when he he was, it was sort of a modified free, or he had less experience, I should say. So it was a modified free agency where he had to like take the minor league minimum or whatever, but he got to pick. But Suzuki, I think, is getting posted. So what does that mean? That means it's whichever team makes the best offer to his current team. Interesting. I mean, come on, Mariners. Which the Mariners right. have won that. I mean, that's how they got Ichiro. He was posted. Oh, apparently it's going to happen on, or it, it happened yesterday, or will happen next Monday, one or the other. <laughs> Either way, it's going to happen. <laughs> stay tuned for up. Stay tuned for updates either next Monday or yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it did happen, there's not an official announcement of it. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> 
Great podcasting as always. All right, Sounders, <laughs> MLS Cup playoffs. Tuesday night, Real Salt Lake, 7.30 p.m. on FS1. Bring it on. Uh, yeah, you're very pessimistic about the Sounders, much more so than me. Uh, here's the health update, which is a long paragraph as usual. Uh, new who will be out for this match is he has been placed in the MLS health and safety protocols as of Monday. Uh, Joao Paulo and Raul Rodriguez have been practicing fully since Friday is expected. Sounds like they should be able to go. We'll see whether they start. Nico Ladero trained in full on Monday. Brian Schmitzer said he'll be available off the bench. Javier Arriaga also trained in full, and the hope is that he can start at center back with Yaimar Gomez, Andrade, and Shane O'Neill in Nuhu's absence. So generally a positive update, despite uh, the unfortunate absence of Nuhu. Real Salt Lake, the Sounders' opponents on Tuesday, had an unusual season with their manager, Freddy Juarez, leaving midseason to take an assistant role with the Sounders uh, following the departures of Gonzalo Pineda and Jimmy Traore from the Sounders coaching staff. So certainly an interesting matchup from that standpoint. Despite that, Salt Lake managed to edge out both LA teams for the final playoff spot in the West, claiming the tiebreaker over the Galaxy on goal differential after a one nothing win over Sporting Kansas City on decision day. Sounders and RSL split two head-to-head meetings, both teams winning by one goal at home. That RSL win came with Joao Paulo unavailable. 538 Soccer Power Index gives the Sounders a 74% chance of advancing. Are we gonna are we gonna do percentage chance of victory? I mean, I don't do you feel like you differ from Soccer Power Index? Do you have a strong strong take beyond that? I, I don't know if they're fully accounting for some of the injury absences. So maybe I'm in like the 70% range. I mean, we know what they're not fully accounting for. The Kraken curse? The curse. Oh, no. <laughs> so you're at like 35%. First off, you are... I'm fra- at, I, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into percent. this. I don't know if we want to get into this before the Seahawks section. You haven't been properly accounting for the Kraken curse in some of your percentage chances of victory lately. It's true. You're learning from your mistakes. Oh, I, I thought Everybody's I thought you were going to blame me personally for the curse. No, no, because I've seen a lot of losing sports, and yet you keep thinking it's going to stop, or at I, least there's a reasonable chance it's going to stop. I'm really, I, I swear to, we'll talk about this in the Seahawks section. I legitimately, in this tiny, exhausted, ten to fifteen children brain, think there's a chance the Seahawks went out. I mean. There's a chance, but it is, it's, so you're telling me there's a chance. I, I will always be optimistic until I have a reason to not be optimistic. I think you had a lot of reasons to not be optimistic. You just went into them in the Kraken section. Oh, because we got out of the Kraken section. All of a sudden you're feeling totally differently. Uh, One other bit of Sounders news. The 2022 MLS opener has been set for Sunday, February 27th versus Nashville SC. It'll be the first matchup between the two franchises who have been in opposite conferences during Nashville's first two seasons as an expansion club, but they'll be moving to the West in 2022 to make room for expansion Charlotte FC. So again, mark your calendars and uh, I will be sure to text you next February. (laughs) Just three short months away. Let's move on to the UW Sports 
portion of the schedule, starting with the women's basketball team, which suffered a 61-53 loss Saturday against number 10 Louisville. Really an encouraging performance against the powerhouse Cardinals, particularly in the fourth quarter. The Huskies trailed by 16 entering the final period, but started the quarter with a 13-0 run to make it a one-possession game at one point before Louisville put the game away. Uh, This week, the Huskies will be traveling to the Bahamas to participate in a tournament along with VCU in North Carolina. They'll play VCU on Thanksgiving Day, the Tar Heels on Saturday. VCU uh, started 2-1 and one with a home loss to uh, Middle Tennessee State. The Tar Heels 4-0, three home wins against an easy schedule, and then they picked up a road win Sunday at TCU before traveling to the Bahamas. UW men's basketball, uh, a second home loss to a non-major conference team last Thursday as they lost 77-72 in overtime to Wyoming, but did bounce back on Monday night with a 77-74 win over George Mason to uh, begin the crossover classic. Last Thursday, the Huskies led the Cowboys 62-55, but went scoreless for four minutes late in regulation, allowing Wyoming to force to tie the game. Terrell Brown Jr. missed a possible game winner at the buzzer, forcing overtime where foul trouble hurt the Huskies. They played the extra session without frontcourt starters Emmett Matthews Jr. and Nate Roberts. Still a disappointing loss as UW again struggled to shoot in that one, making 38% of their twos and 19% of their threes. On Monday in the crossover classic at the Sanford Pentagon, uh, Terrell Brown Jr. sort of played the classic Jalen Noel role in that one, providing key buckets and free throws late to help hold off a rally by George Mason. Brown finished with a game-high 23 points, while P.J. Fuller had 21 off the bench. And the Huskies' 15 assists were as many as they'd had in any two games in the season before tonight. Wow. Not not a real not real strong on ball movement, but that's an encouraging encouraging sign that they were a little better in that regard. It will be a tougher test for them. Good thing they got this one because the next two in the crossover classic will be tougher. Tuesday they play host South Dakota State, who is five and one. Their lone loss came at Alabama. They project is the Summit League favorites and crushed Nevada by twenty seven in the oh opening my. game of the crossover classic Monday. Nevada off to a slow start under Steve Alford, who uh, apparently has been there for three years. <laughs> unbeknownst to me since Eric Musselman left losing their last four including a home loss to San Diego they lost by 22 at Santa Clara and then also at USF dropping from 49th preseason in Ken Palm to 78th okay UW football a 20 to 17 loss Saturday at Colorado officially means that the season will end without bowl eligibility for the first time since 2009, Steve Sarkeesian's first year as head coach at UW. Uh, Before we get into that a little more, let's talk about the coaching search update. First off, Dan Mullen was officially fired at Florida, as we speculated about a couple weeks ago, bringing the total number of open Power 6 jobs to 7, or Power 5, Power 5, a report from my ESPN colleague Adam Rittenberg that Auburn's Brian Harson would be quote a wild card candidate for the Huskies coaching job. Harson was the offensive coordinator under Chris Peterson at Boise State from 2006 to 2010 before replacing him in 2013 after stops as a co-offensive coordinator at Texas and head coach at Arkansas State. Broncos won the Fiesta Bowl in Harson's first season, finishing 12 and two, and won at least 10 games in five of his six non-COVID seasons. Harson then took the Auburn job last December. His team is currently six and five, just three and four in conference play in the SEC. And notably, 
Harson has been unwilling to disclose his vaccination yeah. status. I was say, can he even be the coach of the University of Washington? At, at December 8th deadline for Auburn employees to be fully vaccinated or re- receive an exemption. An exemption is surely a non-starter for UW. And above and beyond that, I, you would think that they would want, much like Jimmy Lake, their head coach, to be a public advocate for the importance of vaccination, making this entirely perplexing. Uh, one of the things Harson did say when he wasn't disclosing his own vaccination status at SEC Media Day was that his team's vaccination rate was in the 60% range. The Huskies were over 95% at that point, according to Jimmy Lake, with their staff already fully vaccinated. And say what you will about Jimmy Lake, the man got vaccinations done. I, for real, More important but, than anything that could ever happen on the football field. Lane Kiffin, too, though. Well, of course. I mean... We don't think Lane Kiffin's going to take this job, but I'm just saying Lane Kiffin did that at Ole Miss. Yes, that's a counterpoint. If your argument is just, well, Brian Harson is working with a totally different group of players than Jimmy Lake was, Lane Kiffin is the counter argument to that. I think, uh, I think that is not going to happen. It, it, <laughs> I, <also laughs> I just don't know what to say. Think. Like, it, uh, but I also like setting aside the vaccination element of it. I, the reason I went back to go listen to that episode 289 was it was right after the Las Vegas Bowl, and I noted in that pod how wildly unimpressed I was with Brian Harson throughout that game. I mean, we we literally did the same thing with Chris Peterson when Boise State came to UW and Coach Sark crushed them. So I, I don't think you can take one game. Brian Harson may be an okay football coach, but it, there's no logic to why you would leave Auburn to come to UW. And the I, vaccine... I mean, I think there's some logic to why you would leave to Auburn to come to UW. I mean, he's going think... to get fired by Auburn. Well, no, it, no I mean, not part of it. Yeah. Not because of the vaccination element, which obviously again, no, would be just an impediment at UW. But yes, if it, and if it's just like you realize my shit isn't going to work in the SEC, it's in kind Alabama. of a doom job though. I mean, how many years after Gus Malzahn won a national championship was he fired? Like, it it just really feels like the type of job that you can't really build any sort of like long term program at if Alabama's there. You're always going to be in the shadow of Alabama, right? And so, like, I get that, but I don't. This is it's a it's fanciful. The cultural cool. fit piece that you're talking about, Bob Stoops would probably be a better cultural fit. Like, I, I there there Ed Orgeron would probably be a better cultural fit here. Like, I don't. I don't see that even as a conversation. Just because Chris Peterson was the coach at UW. It was a, another amusing thing in that podcast was you mentioned that, and and obviously speaking of reading too much into small samples, based on their interaction pregame that they showed on the broadcast, that you didn't feel like Chris Peterson and Brian and Brian Hartson were actually that tight. I can wow, I do not remember that at all. <laughs> uh, LSU, by the way, ninety-seven percent vaccinated. What the fuck happened at Auburn? Uh, well, no, what didn't happen at Auburn is the question. Wow. I mean, that to me suggests that Brian Harson was going out of his way to stop players from being vaccinated or just like not even having the conversation at all. Uh, he did mention that they were they were bringing people in. It, Jimmy like used this phrase too, so I don't want to go too hard in it, but he mentioned... Tell both of them mentioned telling the players about the pros and cons of vaccination, and I'm not familiar with a lot of cons of vaccination, so that that particular phrasing did not strike me as is optimal. It's but like Jimmy, like, they went on to say that, like, speakers. the takeaways: Joe Flacco, Aaron Rodgers, <laughs> Lamar Jackson, they've achieved so much. Joe Rogan. <laughs> well, the other ones are all NFL starting quarterbacks, but. I, I'm, 
Joe Rogan as of yet, as far as we know. Never been an NFL starting quarterback. But just like, I mean, we're talking Super Bowl winners here, right? So, like, why wouldn't you have them in to talk to your team? Just the pros and the cons. <laughs> oh, there were some there were some pros in there, apparently. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's talk about the game. The Huskies have a seven-game Apple Cup winning streak on the we're, line. We're, not, we're just yada yada yawing past the Colorado game. We'll, we'll the... get to it in a second in the context of okay. Uh, dating back to 2013 with no game last season, the Huskies have not lost an Apple Cup, notably at any point since the Pelton cast began. Wow. WSU was previously favored by three points in 2018. Before then, you got to go back to 2006 to find the last time before this year that they were favored. in. And they, they won that game in 2006. Uh, I don't remember the outcome in 2006, but probably. Was that the game that Lewis Rankin took the touchdown back at kick return touchdown? I Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Cougars have already assured their bowl eligibility with a blowout win Friday in Tucson over Arizona. Uh, so going back to the the Colorado game, we saw Dylan O'Brien get in two series for his first Patrick meaningful... O'Brien. Dylan Dylan O'Brien is the actor, right? He was in Curb. Uh, his first meaningful action, he got in briefly in the Arkansas State game. Uh, Sam oh, Heward. That was the kid who's like a hot actor who covered pitches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. yeah that's a, that's a... I love that he's 30 years old and they were like, he's a hot actor. There's so much of that episode. Wait, he's also in the uh, the Taylor Swift video too, right? Is he? Yeah. All too well. He's in All Too Well. <laughs> he's been in Big team month for him. All too well. He covered peaches on Curve Your Enthusiasm. Uh, maybe he played Curvy for the Huskies. Who knows? <laughs> Can you roll it out at this point? Well, his name's not Jake, so. Well, that's that's a problem. They, they're they're out of Jake's. Uh, Taylor so Swift's the bo- out of Jake's, too. <laughs> well, there it is. Thank you. With the bowl game off the table, we're really a week late at all these references, but it still works. Uh, Sam Heward can play Friday without jeopardizing his redshirt status, and I think the question is probably how much he plays and whether he even potentially starts this game. He he should be starting and playing the entire game. Like the outcome of this game is not a huge deal. On honestly, like none of it really matters. I said that last week to you, and you completely disputed this. Now that they're out of bowl eligibility, it really doesn't matter. I mean, but, the yeah. Apple Cup still matters. Maybe Having a bunch of Cook fans. fans. There's nobody wow. even to talk shit to. It's just you and me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's going to be a shit ton of Cougs at this game. The ticket prices are actually quite expensive. Are they? to uh, what I saw on the ESPN schedule page. Let's uh, consider uh, selling the tickets to Cook fans. Anyway. No. Have you been not. to the last two UW games? You're trying that's to subject the... yourself to more of that? What's the weather like? Not that bad, I don't think. I don't know that anything could be that bad. We better be getting honest. donuts again. Uh, but they, they should be starting Sam Heward in this game. There's there's really no setback. The The chances of Dylan Morris being on this team next year are not that high. I don't agree with that. <clears throat> One I mean, or the I other has to go. The chances, they are not going to go into next season with both these quarterbacks on the roster. 
one or the other is going to have to go. Maybe they go into to, into spring football with both of them. At some point, one of these quarterbacks is going to transfer. And you don't agree with this? I mean, probably that's the case. It depends. Each each individual's journey is not necessarily the same. Just because previous backup quarterbacks have transferred doesn't necessarily mean they will. I mean, certainly, again, as I've said, I don't think that if Dylan Morris remained the starter, that Sam Heward would transfer at that point. I mean, it's probably less likely that Sam Heward would transfer than Dylan Morris. But the reality is this is Sam Heward's job. He's going to have every chance in the same way that it was Jacob Eason's job when he transferred to UW. It was I'm like still not a hundred percent convinced that the UW starting quarterback in 2022 is currently on the roster. Given the prevalence of transfers and a new coach bringing a new system, I think it, I think there's we should consider the possibility that the new coach is that the new quarterback is playing somewhere else right now. I'm willing to consider that possibility, but it also doesn't mean that that quarterback, just a quarterback somewhere else. You didn't say Dylan Morris. Like Dylan Morris is almost certainly going to transfer after this off or after the season. And I think there's an extraordinarily high chance. You might as well give Sam here a game. It doesn't affect, it doesn't affect his red shirt. It affects very little. Give him a shot. If it's terrible, maybe you consider playing Dylan Morris, but like, I just don't know what they're looking to see at this point, right? We're not learning anything about Dylan Morris anymore. We know who Dylan Morris is. He probably will end up being a very good college quarterback, but he's probably not going to be. I've said this over and over and over again. He's probably not going to be that very good college quarterback at the University of Washington. And it'll it'll be unfortunate to a certain extent that this is the way that college football has to work, but it's the way that college football does work. And it's probably going to be Sam Heward's job or an unnamed quarterback who's not on the roster. It is probably not Dylan Morris's job. And to have Dylan Morris play this Apple cup, because, because you want to do what gives you the best chance of winning the game. I, now, now playing Patrick O'Brien and <sighs> Sam Heward the last weeks wasn't what gave you the best chance of winning the game. And they did do that. So clearly that's not the entire consideration at this point. I mean, we've seen, I, I think, I mean, what were Dylan, Dylan Morris's numbers against Colorado were not that bad, right? I mean, he had the two interceptions, one of them being a really, really brutal one. The, the one around midfield, they probably weren't going to score at second and 20 anyway, but the one in the end zone was brutal. Uh, and then obviously was involved to some extent in one of the two fumbles, but he threw for 387 yards, which was a career high. Yeah. It seemed like a lot of stuff went right. I mean, I, I didn't watch this game because we were driving to Portland, but like, it seemed like the offense was calling good plays to a certain extent. Dylan Morris was. I mean, they still were completely incapable of running the ball. It's, it's kind of shocking how bad they are at running the ball, but I mean, it's, it's just inexplicable how you could be that bad about just lining up and moving people in front of you. Like it can't (laughs) all be on play calling at some point. Yeah. It really makes no sense. And it's one of the great mysteries of the season, but can Sam Heward go out there against Wazoo and move the ball? Probably. And Plausibly. Sh- should we see it? Absolutely. There are people who are going to that game. The people who are going to that game are wanting to see Sam Heward play. Are we are we counting the Wazoo fans who are going to outnumber UW fans among them? Sure. I think they do too. Out of yeah. curiosity. Uh, 
Injuries mounting for UW. Terrell Bynum, Sean McGrew, Kate Otten all missed last week's game again, as did Zion Tupuola Fatui with an injury that a team spokesman told reporters was not related to his Achilles injury. Uh, there was no update on those injuries this week in the uh, media availability. So we'll find out on at like 4 p.m. on, fr- on Friday afternoon. Bob Gregory's learning. <laughs> I, uh, I just... You know, this was this was the worst season since they went 0 and 12, and in basically every capacity, it feels like an early 2000s season or like a late 90s season to a certain extent. They came into it. Oh no, way more. Well, yeah, I guess you're. I guess that's fair. But even in but in the late 90s, they still were at least seven and five, or you know, six and five, and won a bowl game or something like that. It was definitely like one of those seasons that we've seen before where they came in with talent and expectations and it just collapsed, right? Mm -hmm. This is Keith Gilbertson who made you coach type season. And it's been a pretty brutal one from beginning to end. I mean, they started with a loss against Montana, one of the worst losses in program history. And things ultimately didn't get that much better. Their best win came against... Stanford, who, what was the score against Cal in that game? Well, I guess that means Cal was the best win, right? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, sure. An overtime victory against Cal because they happened to fumble the ball at the one-yard line. Like, when you look at the amount of games that they, did they, I guess, they really could have almost lost every single game this year except for Arkansas State. Because, right, their other wins were Arizona, that they took a comeback in the fourth quarter to win. They were Cal, which they won because of a fumble at the one-yard line in overtime. And was there another one? Stanford. Oh, and Stanford, which they won because of... What, did Stanford miss like a fourth down play and then we got the ball back and threw that touchdown? Correct. I mean, but the the losses were all very winnable as well. I mean, that's been the nature of the season is that is. They've they've played to the level of their opposition with remarkable consistency. Just no slightly worse. What slightly worse. Is. I yes. guess so. I. I mean, they did have a chance against I mean, Oregon, by the, which, would, by the way, also the name of much of the Seahawks season. When we get there, <clears throat> it's it's been a rough one. The good thing is there's still talent left on this roster for whoever the next coach is, including, let's say. One of Dylan Morris, you know, if you just polish Dylan Morris a little bit, like he does look like he could be a very capable Pac-12 starter. I, If he transferred to another Pac-12 school, I'd be happy to cheer for him. But name only Sam Hewart, who will be the starting quarterback next year. All right, let's talk about the Cougs after starting with a home loss to Utah State, which looks somewhat better now. We've, we've talked at length about Utah State and their season. Uh, and back-to-back to USC and Utah to start conference play. The USC loss does not look better. Uh, the Cougs have won four of their last se- five of their last seven games, I should say, with lone losses at, uh, at home to BYU and then at Oregon. They were four and three when Nick Rolovich and four assistants were fired after their requests for exemptions to Washington's vaccine mandate for state employees were denied. Now two and two under interim coach Jake Dickert, previously the defensive coordinator, and considered the favorite to get this job on a full-time basis after the season. Really? Yep. Oh, good for him. Which, I mean, would also probably be good for the players to maintain a degree of continuity. Like, UW is also going through a second coaching change in three years, but it 
there was so much more continuity again between the Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake eras as opposed to the upheaval of Mike Leach to Nick Rolovich to whatever comes next. Cook's 52nd in FPI, their 69th on offense, 37th on defense. Quarterback Jaden Delora, who started as a true freshman in 2020, split time early in the season, but has eventually taken a nice step forward, averaging 8.1 yards per attempt with 23 touchdowns this season. He's eighth in the Pac-12 in QBR. Max Borgie, uh, fourth-year starter, no longer the kind of receiving threat he was in the air raid under Mike Leach with just 143 receiving yards out of the backfield, but leads the team with 751 rushing yards. Wide receivers Kelvin Jackson and Travell Harris, second and third, respectively, in the Pac-12 in receiving yards as part of that uh, run-and-shoot attack. The Cougars are now running. Harris's nine touchdowns lead the conference. Washington State, 10th in opponent rush EPA per play entering last week, but their pass defense a little better in the middle of the pack. And overall, their defense rates quite well. I don't know if that's strength of schedule or what the disconnect is there between EPI and, and FPI efficiency. So... Statistically, the Huskies are probably still a better team than Wazoo. Well, I mean, if you look, take a look at the preseason expe- expectations, yes, Washington State has performed at a better level over the course of the season. Interesting, but it's quite close. Yeah, I mean, the FPI pick is overwhelmingly in UW's favor, but they don't know about the Kraken curse. <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be a close one, I think. I mean, similar to what you were talking about with the way that, and again, we don't really know what to expect. We don't know who's going to be starting this game. We don't know what the offense is going to look like. I Again, I would love to see Sam Heward in basically like a normal situation. We haven't seen it this year. You know, we saw him a couple of times with possessions from inside the 10-yard line against Arizona State. Uh, he ended up with at least one first down out of those situations. Didn't have a ton. I would love to see him just get had the ability to get a little bit comfortable. This playing one series and having another quarterback play another series, it's just not, it's not really the way that football's meant to be played. You know, the a quarterback should have time, unless you're going to change it situationally, a quarterback should be able to have a handful of series consecutively to get settled in a little bit. Because there's a difference between coming in, the speed of football, and then being taken out immediately and not being able to adjust to that. I think it's unfair the way that the coaches have treated the situation. Uh, so, you know, if they did want to incorporate other quarterbacks into this, instead of mixing it up by series, they should have mixed it up by quarter or something like that. Or, or a, a I mean, O'Brien did have a back-to-back series. He just didn't know a lot of plays because there were three and out on both of them. That's I look, nobody here is arguing. You think that I'm just for any quarterback who's not <laughs> I Dylan didn't say Morris. That. I didn't say I, that. It's mostly out of curiosity that we should be playing Sam Heward, but it, I feel like getting Sam Heward those reps at this point is an important thing to do. I think Dylan Morris is probably a better quarterback in this moment, but if they were starting Sam Heward the entire season, would Sam Heward be a better quarterback than Dylan Morris is right now? And would the team be poised next year to have a better Sam Heward? I think that's kind of what the question is. Yeah, I think that's all pretty meaningless. All right. But, you know, we don't know exactly what we're going to see, but I think that this, I think this Husky team, depending on who's going to play, like the defense is going to play well. Was they, This is a good defense. So... They're going to be in every game because of that defense, and it's up to, can they score 21 points? Can they avoid brutal turnovers? Can they avoid 90-plus yard fumble returns for touchdowns? <sighs> it was just, oh, that was such a killer. Oh, 
<laughs> to be first in goal and give up. I mean, a, a like a pick 12 in that situation is one thing, but a fumble 12? I, I don't know how often that happens, but it can't be very often. Literally, the only way that they could have lost some of these games is by being cursed. I don't know if I would say that. I, I, I think they've done enough on their own. But what statistically, that game was not close, right? No, it was a it was a massive blowout in terms of per play effectiveness. You have to point to a different power that is compelling this team at this point, because I, w- I want to look up the 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 official numbers. Like they are a better team than four and seven, and having lost some of these games, you know, like. But, but also they kind of are, because they did make those mistakes. It's like it's one thing. I guess it's the the snap four hundred and twenty six yards to hundred and eighty three. Like, I, I. How do you say that they kind of aren't? Well, because I think they made some some extre- they've made some extremely poor decisions in key moments, or you know had had failures of performance rather than like, like, yes, we, we talked about this. What was, what was the pass that Dylan Morris had intercepted when he threw a go ball against that was against UCLA. Right. And it was like, well, the odds that that, the odds that the defender is going to come up with that are pretty low, but also, you know, he was throwing it into double coverage in the Colorado game. He did underthrow his receiver in the end zone pretty badly and it was intercepted. So they got to own a little bit of it. I mean, I'm not saying that they shouldn't own a little bit of it, but like these numbers are not comparable. No, of- they're not. I mean, that's what happens when you turn the ball over four times and never get a turnover. I, one thing I've wanted to look up is basically what's the correlation between your effectiveness on a per play basis and forcing turnovers, because it's very odd for the UW defense to force as few turnovers as they do well being as good as they are. I mean, I feel like we've seen that at times from Pete Carroll defenses. Uh, wow. What year? An effective Pete Carroll defense? <laughs> fair. Is Michael Bennett walking through that door? Are you kidding me? Did you give a percentage <laughs> chance of victory? Uh, fuck it. 57%. Oh, you keep talking about the curse, and then you say things in this <laughs> chance of victory that are inconsistent with the curse. We're winning this game, damn it. I think it's a 40% chance of victory. <sighs> uh, Jake Hayner update. I just love horrible moments and then being like, we got to go. Like <laughs> Every time there's a horrible moment, it's like, we need to get out of here right now. <laughs> I'm concerned that, uh, you know, you're going to push someone down at some point in the rush to get out. <laughs> Let's avoid that. It's like, it's, there have to be people around for that to be the case. Well... And the Cougar fans will probably be staying in their seats to celebrate on Saturday, on Friday. Oregon fans uh, didn't. Jake Hainer update. It was a bye for Fresno State last week. They wrap up their season on Thanksgiving Day or the regular season on Thanksgiving Day at San Jose State. Of course, Fresno State is bowl eligible. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving <laughs> to Jake Hainer. <laughs> it's unclear where you can watch this one on TV, but I'm sure we'll find a way to have it oh. on. Man, I'll do anything to not watch Bears Lions. Oh dear. We'll go to any length to not watch Bears Lions so we could watch Jake Hayner. The Jake we can all believe in. Bowl eligible. 
if Jake Hayner is the quarterback of this team, Jimmy Lake's still the coach. I mean, they're definitely, by the way, is, I mean, I have no idea how much validity to put in this, but Kalen DeBoer is one of the person, people who has been mentioned is a legit candidate for the UW job. Why so. do you not know how much validity to put in it? But just based on where, the source of of these lists. Jake Hayner for offensive coordinator? He still has eligibility. He could come back. Does he really? No, I actually There's doesn't. There's no I guess, way he. he still has eligibility. <laughs> he doesn't. No, that's... We're going to be watching Hard Knocks next year, and there's going to be, like, in the background is going to be Jake Hayner. It's going to be like, oh, sh- is that Jake Hayner back there? And you're going to be like, yeah, he's on the, I don't know. He's on the Bears now. <laughs> there was a Washington State quarterback who was, like, the fourth Montez. Montez. No, yeah. Steven oh, Montez. Steven Montez from Colorado. From Washington yeah. State. He's from Washington State. He was wearing a Sounders jersey. Oh, that's right. Okay. In the that, back that in the background out, yeah. of Hard Knocks. That's gonna be Jake Hayner next year. He might have eligibility. I don't know. That would be the greatest moment in UW history. <laughs> if Jake Hayner returned with Kalen DeBoer. I love that that being like the pitch from Kalen DeBoer to be like, I'll bring Hayner with me. <laughs> Dylan Morris could go be the quarterback of Fresno State. They'd probably like they'd probably perform to the ability that they're at this year. Dylan Morris would crush at Fresno State. Let's talk about the Seahawks. So many people described Sunday's loss to the Arizona Cardinals as the end of the end of an era. And to them I have only one question, which is which is where were you when Russell Wilson got hurt like six weeks ago? That was the end of the era. Am I wrong? I don't know if I agree with that. Look, some of us were very optimistic through that entire time period, through many curses, four different ones, in fact. The There was still a legitimate, a reasonable expectation that the Seahawks could be making a playoff push. With Russell Wilson coming back against Green Bay, you look there was at, a path to it. But one of the things we've learned is... By the way, when it turns out you have a six to eight week injury or an eight to 10 week injury and you come back in four weeks, maybe you're not quite 100 percent. Maybe that isn't as, as much of a as a quarterback with an injury to your finger. Yeah, your maybe that's finger. still a problem. Uh, a finger on your throwing hand. I. I mean, again, I just viewing it optimistically, and I think this, we were right to do that looking at these opponents to a certain extent that were on the roster. Like even define, looking... define we. Is that like you and the other people that were optimistic? That's not you and me, right? You just weren't optimistic at all. No. I mean the Packers, you see the Packers against the Vikings. Like there were some moments, but that was a beatable team. If there was a normal Russell Wilson, I think I they agree. they could have won that game. I agree. S- same with this Cardinals game. Ah the Cardinals game to a certain extent. So the in the Packers game, the defense played well enough that if the Seahawks offense had played at their usual Russell Wilson level, they could have won the game. In the Cardinals game, Matt Prater was bad enough that if yes. the Seahawks offense had played to its usual Russell Wilson level, they could have won the game. Uh, it's pretty funny. I mean, you know, Ben Baldwin will bring up like, basically the defense is fixed when they're playing against bad opponents. And... For this one, like I know a lot of people are going to point towards the injuries to DJ Reed and Trey Brown and should be pointing to those injuries 
or whatever. But like, ultimately, I think that Packers team that they played well against is not, that was not a normal Packers team. It was same thing that you're talking about with an injury. It was Aaron Rodgers coming back on one day of practice, uh, pre-COVID. And not even po- a day. Post-COVID. You don't practice on Saturday. You didn't even have a day of practice. Without a day of practice. Like they were set up to have a good game in that one. And then is that Colt McCoy's music? No, no. I mean, like I, I just, cool. Colt McCoy, what he did on Sunday is what I thought Ben Roethlisberger was going to do to this defense way back then. Where it was just like, make all the simple underneath throws, expose the weaknesses, the soft underbelly of the the Pete Carroll system, and throw for 300 plus yards while doing it. It's If you know what you're doing, I don't think it's that hard of a thing to do. And do you know who knows what they're doing? Cliff Kingsbury? Cliff Kingsbury. Cliff Kingsbury, I would say before this year, the much maligned Cliff Kingsbury, who got a lot of blame for Kyler Murray getting injured last year. Turning uh, a team that had the first pick in the draft, I'm now Cliff Kingsbury stand somehow, turning a team that had the first pick in the draft to select Kyler Murray into a borderline playoff team within two years and into an almost guaranteed playoff team now. Like, that Cardinals offense with Colt McCoy under center, he came in and he thrashed Pete Carroll's defense like he knew exactly where Pete Carroll's defense would be at every second and he took advantage of it and that's what a good offensive coach can do and I think like when people call it the end of an era I'm not exactly sure what that means do I think that Pete Carroll could be gone after this year maybe at the same time the the two teams that I look at well I mean there's another person who might be gone after the season we'll see we have we have no idea. It's too early to have that conversation. But you look at New Orleans Saints. They'd won a Super Bowl in 2009. Some sustained success after that. Fading, fading, fading. 2014, 2015, 2016. 7-9 in three consecutive seasons missing the playoffs. Is Drew Brees a better quarterback than Russell Wilson? Probably. At least similar caliber, right? He plays in more of a dome than Russell Wilson. Fair enough, whatever. But like Drew Brees and Russell Wilson are comparable quarterbacks to a certain extent, right? Yeah, as long as you have Russell Wilson, you have a chance, for sure. And, but and the question th- is whether you're going to have Russell Wilson. Three consecutive years of 7-9 and nine play, and then things turned around for them. And then they had four consecutive years of 10-plus wins. And being Super Bowl contenders again. Like, saying that this is going to go... Russell Wilson, it, it provided he's on the team, which nothing that happened on Sunday made you think more or less that Russell Wilson would be on the team next year. That's up to Russell Wilson. He's under contract. Will he request a trade? I don't Russell, know. Russell Could Wilson be... saying afterwards he wanted more tempo is a thing that might have might have been an indicator in that regard. But sure, yes. But Russell Wilson might have wants and interests that ultimately don't reach the point of he's going to request a trade. Because... While the grass might always be greener, there is still, like, he is entrenched in the city and with this team, and he's under contract. It's not easy to trade a player like Russell Wilson. Uh, Similar thing for the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? You have two seasons, maybe not quite as pronounced, but they're win two Super Bowls, fade a little bit, two eight and eight seasons where they miss the playoffs, and then they bounce back and have four consecutive 10 plus one seasons. Like, this happens. Just having the... Sustained success when you're not the Patriots 
usually leads to slightly down seasons. And if you have a good enough quarterback, you might mitigate those down seasons to a certain extent, which the Seahawks have done. And you might bottom out at certain points. But like, especially if there's an injury that happens, the idea that the Seahawks run is over. I just absolutely do not buy. They need to continue to th- having the the lack of draft a- assets for next year is one of the biggest issues with this because they're not going to be able to build it up as quickly as you would like them to. But they're going this defense will get good again, provided Russell Wilson doesn't go. This defense will get good again before Russell Wilson is gone. If if he is a lifelong Seahawks quarterback in the same way that Ben and Drew Brees were. There will be two, three years of period where the defense is good enough to match what the offense is able to do. These games are Geno Smith was starting. Russell Wilson got injured. Geno Smith was starting. Russell Wilson is still not healthy. Like, it's frustrating that it happened and that we had to view it this way. I just, I don't really understand why we're treating it like it's a doomsday scenario, though. <laughs> it's a doomsday scenario that you're three and seven without a first round pick. Yeah, I think that is a doomsday scenario. I hate there to break is it to you. Always another season. That's the thing. It's like just missing. If you miss the playoffs for one year, we're fucking blessed as Seahawks fans. We are blessed. When you look at the success no, that we've I had, I hundred percent believe it. Like agree with that part of it. We can look, be bad for a year. Look, I mean, we uh, the Pelton Cast era. This, the Huskies have never lost an Apple Cup. The Seahawks have never in the Pelton Cast era played a single game where they were eliminated from playoff contention. The only time they didn't make the playoffs, they lost and missed out in week 17. I, I think there was a week 17 game after they lost to the 49ers in 11. That was the last game that they were eliminated from playoff contention and the only one since Pete Carroll's arrival, if I'm remembering correctly. That seems right, yeah. All of that is true, but... Again, the only thing, opinion that matters here is Russell Wilson's matter opinion. I, I'm and just saying, I, I don't think that anything that has happened this season is going to make Russell Wilson feel better about things than where he was this time last year or uh, in January last year, I guess. Now, my bigger concern is I, I think the issue ultimately is that I don't know if there is a defensive scheme. There's no, In fact, I'm not going to say I don't know. There is no defensive scheme that is good enough to have bad players. And there's a lot of issues along the way for the Seahawks. They've drafted poorly. They have not had as many draft picks. They haven't had good draft picks for this, let's say, half decade or whatever, since kind of the golden era of Seahawks drafting. It's been bad, ultimately. And a lot of that is based on luck. Usually it's about how many shots you're taking. They haven't gotten necessarily lucky in that time period, and they've gotten mildly unlucky. You could talk and about their the process pro- has also been very bad. Exactly. You can talk about the process for individual players, but ultimately sometimes your process is bad and you still end up with a good player. Like True. That, I mean, they did draft during this middle of that stretch, DK Metcalf. And your process is never always bad. The thing Pete Carroll's defense is not a good enough defense to withstand having bad players. And they just don't have good enough players on defense, whether that's because of the players that they're choosing or more likely because of where they've drafted over this last decade, the kind of money that they've had to invest in other places. Like that's the way this goes. That's why those teams that I was talking about have seasons where they fade. You build it back up and then you But they also like this. The saints went out and changed defensive coordinators. The Seahawks can't do that because the head coach is the, defensive coordinator this like is the P- when the saints were having those down seasons 
the head coach's side of the ball was still good. The other side of the ball was bad. When the head coach's side of the ball is bad, that's a fucking problem. I'm not sure if that's the same, though, when you look at Mike Tomlin. Like, I don't know exactly what... I think Mike Tomlin is mostly a defensive coach. I mean, and the, I... the offense was generally pretty good. The offense for the Steelers is... For the peak era for them, the offense was better than the defense. But, like... Or, I guess, for that second peak, right? Like, for the Le'Veon Bell era, you know? The... I don't know if you can exactly look at it that way, but... The thing that is more concerning to me is you look around the NFC West and who are the coaches who are in the NFC West? They are young and they are offensive minded and they have figured out Pete Carroll's defense. Pete Carroll's defense with very good players would be good enough to overcome that, to overcome these coaches. Right now with even an average defense, Cliff Kingsbury, Kyle Shannon, Sean McVay are going to kill the Seahawks every single time they play each other unless Trey Lance is starting. This is with Colt McCoy that this happened. Granted, I think that Cardinals offense, I mean, they played well against the 49ers also. like mm, They played okay against the 49ers. They won that game more with defense. I mean, this Arizona team is much better on defense than they are on offense, despite Cliff Kingsbury's presence and Kyler Mur- when Kyler Murray is healthy. That, to me, is... I The Seahawks are not keeping up in that regard. Now, do they need to go out and hire a young offensive-minded coach? Would love that, but there's also the wrong offensive-minded young coach. Like it's not it's not solely just the answer. I think part of it is that they were going to have a bottoming out season at some point. It was very accelerated by the injury to Russell Wilson that basically has cost them five games in the middle of the season. Maybe things will turn around after this, but it's probably too late. I mean, the other thing that's happened this season is they're having an unsustainably poor, unsustainably poor run of third down play. With Russell Wilson at quarterback this season, he ranks sixth in EPA per play on first and second down and first in completion percentage over expected, according to Ben Baldwin's RBSDM.com on third down. Of the 33 qualifying quarterbacks who have thrown at least, who have been involved in at least 75 plays on third down, Russell Wilson is 33rd in EPA per play and 33rd in completion percentage over expected. There is just no way that it's going to continue. There's no track record of that big a split. First and second downs are a larger sample size, better predictor going before forward. I mean, you'd want to consider the third down plays as well. You'd want to not throw out that data. So his true level of play over the course of the season is somewhere in between those, but that's in part because of the finger. As I noted on Twitter, he had not had two consecutive games with below average CPOE since September, 2017, the first two games of the shoddy era until the two weeks since he's come back from the injury. And that strikes me as significantly less than a coincidence. And all of this is like, we just can't even evaluate Shane Waldron at this point because he hasn't had a, he hasn't had a real Russell Wilson since halftime of the Rams game, basically. And even when he did, they were having this bad third down luck. It's pretty baffling. I wonder, uh, as the Seahawks is a team who's on the higher end of running the ball on first down, right? Of running and running situations and passing and passing situations. If the situations that Russell Wilson is passing on first and second down are much more advantageous situations to pass the ball than on third down. And a lot of times they're getting into like, how, what are the, can you see the average third down situation that they're in? Like 
are they ending up in third and longs a lot of the time? And you know, it's funny. I, that's what I thought was going to happen on Sunday because they were going to run the ball a lot, and Rashad Penny was supposed to be involved in running the ball a lot, which didn't transpire because he suffered a hamstring injury on his 18-yard run to start the game, which was pretty wild, quite impressive. They actually, I, I, I stopped counting at some point, but they didn't have that many third and longs. It was just the complete inability to convert any third down and a number of sacks on those plays just crushed the offense. They just didn't, didn't. But I I think what you said is obviously completely accurate is that the only way you can be successful on third down is by not getting to third down. Yes. Uh, And some of the balls that Russ threw, like uh, I hear what you're saying about Russ Wilson and his health. It's an inconsistent thing. Yeah, I mean, but he like, looked a lot more on, particularly when he was throwing the ball to Tyler Lockett. It looked like the Russell Wilson of oldie. Tyler Lockett, four target, five targets, four catches, 115 yards. Uh, if you look at everyone else, 20 targets, 10 catches for 92 yards. There, there's definitely something to be said about them not having a legitimate third receiver on this team. Uh, and, you know, say what you will, I they haven't really even had a chance to develop the Eskridge but like having nobody besides DK and Tyler Lockett the amount of action that's having to go to players like Will Disley and Gerald Everett is more than they should be getting uh, I don't know if I would necessarily say that I mean Gerald Everett was more involved this week and he was the other successful receiver frankly the issue the big part of the issue this week was Russ couldn't connect with DK eight targets four catches 31 yards just like that ball that he threw into double coverage. It's like, oh, it was a perfect throw. Like, if you're going to throw the ball into double coverage, Dylan Morris needs to learn about that. Like, <laughs> he threw I mean, it up there at a place where it's like, DK could go make a play. It was probably not going to be picked. It was a perfect throw by Russ. Right. And some of those balls that he hit to Tyler, like, just the waiting and being able to hit them, the line was okay in some of those situations. The, there's still a lot of, uh, the ball is not, getting down the field there's a little bit too much of uh horizontal stuff instead of vertical stuff in this offense and i think that's a bit of an issue uh you know with the evaluating of shane waldron like they're getting to the flats to the tight ends more than i feel like they should be and they're not getting it to the receivers in the right places but when russ has time and has been able to like see through those routes that players like tyler are running it's been perfect I mean, I think it was more of against Green Bay. He just clearly wasn't, you know, effective at all throwing the ball as we usually have come to expect because of the finger. Last week, I think it was more, it just popped up on certain plays. And that was enough to throw the Seahawks offense off track. But their defense, you know, uh, there was a drive where the Seahawks scored a touchdown to go down three. Yep. And Colt McCoy marched down the field and scored a touchdown to win the game. Like, say what you will about Russell Wilson, but, like, the defense was put into a position where if they get a stop, if they hold them to a field goal, even, it's a totally different game. And granted, statistically, the Seahawks were outplayed by the Cardinals, but all you just need to sneak out a win. Like, right. something has to go right for the Seahawks at some point this season, and that's why the only thing you can point to credibly is that they're cursed like i'm sorry but how in two consecutive weeks can kevin king 
have an interception that stands on a play where he drops the ball and Sidney Jones not have an interception when he, I still haven't even seen this replay outside of, it was something where they showed it over and over and over again in the stadium. And it was just like that stance. I was like, they're reviewing it to see whether he was touched down after he intercepted it. The I thought idea it was where that, he stepped out of bounds. The idea that he dropped that ball did not even come up. Like they are, didn't, they're he didn't drop it. He trapped it. It was a fucking interception. And like the one thing that went right for the Seahawks, there's a couple of Tyler Lockett passes and that play that went right. The defense had it. The, if that play stands, the Seahawks are winning the game. Like everything was cooking at that point. It was fine. It was like the Seahawks are finally back. It's dark. It's cold. It's November. We are feeling it in Lumen Field. The Lumen Field was rocking for a second. They overturned that play. It was over. Like, the game was over when they overturned that play, and it was the wrong call. And in consecutive weeks, they have been screwed by two, two calls that went opposite directions. Kevin King dropped that ball in the end zone. Same thing with the Jamal Adams pass interference play. It is a, it, a tiny, tiny pass interference that you don't end the game on. Let them kick the field goal, see what the Seahawks can do. Like, I'm shocked that they got the Christian Kirk touchdown right, that they didn't call that a touchdown. But it was shocking, shocking when they overturned that play and how it can be true in two consecutive weeks that one of those plays is an interception against the Seahawks and the one that the Seahawks have is not an interception. We cannot get just even fucking luck, right? Whatever happened to the Cheat Hawks? Like, can we get something to go our way here? Mm, I mean, Tyler Luck, it may have stepped out of bounds on that on that long reception that he had where he they also was a personal foul at the end of it. That was the Cheat Hawks play. Before the catch? Yeah, Jonathan Vilma was like way too certain that he stepped out of bounds for like, oh, his foot is like the pixels are ending at the same point. Like, I don't think they could have overturned it even if the Cardinals had challenged it, but that was it, the Cheat Hawks play. It's just so frustrating and it builds up such tension when you're watching football and you're just like, can we just... And that moment that City Jones intercepted that pass, the entire stadium, there was it was so tense the entire time. The entire stadium finally had this like release. It's like in soccer when you're building up to a goal and they finally score it. And or then VAR comes in. They do the little screen right there and they're like, he was off sides. And you're just like, I actually fucking hate sports. <laughs> you just hate review. I'm sorry, but it was an interception. I'm going to go watch this right now. Hold on. Anyway. <laughs> now I, wa I watched the play and I was like, well. <laughs> that actually is a trap, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I can see it. The fact that they called it on the field an interception, yes. it stays as an interception. I can't, I can't look at it and say clear cut that it's one way or the other. And if that's what they did in Green Bay, they had it called on the field. If they call that Kevin King pass an incompletion because the ball hit the ground, it stays an incompletion. And the fact that they call it on the field and that exact same reasoning applies against the Seahawks both weeks in a row in plays that absolutely transform the game. Look, maybe they didn't play better than any of these teams. If those two plays do not happen, we are talking about different outcomes and we're talking about different percentage chances of playoff odds for the Seahawks. Let's talk about the injuries for the Seahawks. Chris Carson underwent season any neck surgery last week. So uh, certainly hope he gets back after that. Uh, always scary with neck surgery. 
Trey Brown suffered a patella injury, as you alluded to, during the game. And Pete Carroll said Monday that season-ending surgery for him is imminent. So a disappointing oh. end to what's been an awesome rookie season for Trey Brown, oh. really establishing himself as a starter. And DJ Reed also missed the game with a knee injury. He suffered in practice late last week, leaving the Seahawks with Jones and Bliss Austin is their two cornerbacks. I mean, it is interesting that despite that, it wasn't really on the outside that the Seahawks got attacked in this. It was game. Zach fucking Ertz. It was it was a lot of lot of Zach Ertz. Uh, Rondale Moore got targeted eleven times, caught all eleven passes, although they only went for like fifty one yards. And not does all Cliff Kingsbury just... have him in a PPR league? Eleven for eleven, or I guess Colt McCoy, like. But Rondale Moore had one of the biggest plays of the game, which is it was like a fourth and twelve or third and twelve pickup, I think, where he just split three defenders. That was a real brutal one to give up. But they did a good job. Christian Kirk, who we talked about, has been one of the best receivers in football thus far this year. Two catches for twenty five yards on five targets. AJ Green had a little more success on the other side. I mean, they they just threw it to other players. Like, I don't, there's only so many balls to go around. So That's Zach Ertz has eight catches and Rondell Moore has 11 catches like that's kind of gonna be it and the frustrating thing is like at, at the stadium I've grown to really hate Jordan Brooks but like at the stadium who I think made at least one good play in this game they're like tackle stats for Jordan Brooks and I'm like dog at stadium it's because people are catching passes right in front of him like every single pass that is completed is Jordan Brooks being out of position or not fast enough or whatever for our, our, our pass defending linebacker who we'd selected in the first round, like, and let KJ Wright go because of it's just everything about that process. It's like one, two, three, boom, boom, boom. You can see it on the field of what is wrong with the Seahawks right now. And that is Rashad Penny, LJ Collier being inactive, Jordan Brooks being ineffective. And it's like those three things, if those three, and you could even take it back to Malik McDowell, like it, those blowing those four picks in a row, like it's, it's pretty hard to do. Five you know? picks in a row. Who else are we? Six picks in a row, actually. Oh no. <laughs> that face. I mean, Jamal Adams had some awesome plays on Sunday, but. It drafted being... Bruce Irvin over Russell Wilson being on the wrong end of the holding penalty. Oh, you're you're counting down. you're counting both of the Jamal the Jamal Adams picks. Oh, okay. D- Jamal Adams did it's funny because I feel like people unnecessarily blame Jamal Adams in this game when like the ball that he made at the at the goal line that was swung out to uh, was that Connor uh or is like close to a safety like he, Jamal made a hell of a play there and I think Jamal still made some plays. Like there was that pass interference, which I still think was pretty questionable. But he's a safety. That's that's the reality. Is the allocation of resources is better in the secondary than it is maybe somewhere else. But it's not two first round draft picks allocation of resources. It's strong. They could they could, they could have drafted somebody who is inactive for that slot. Let's talk quickly about Washington football team this week's opponent. Washington football team coming off two impressive wins since their bye week. Uh, first, a 29-19 home upset of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the uh, the defending Super Bowl champions who narrowly survived their first round matchup with Washington football team last year in the wild card round. 
And then uh, last Sunday, 27-21 win at Carolina as they spoiled Cam Newton's return to Carolina as the Panthers' starting quarterback. Of course, all of that brought the Washington football team only to four and six on the season. They're starting Taylor Heineke, the star of that playoff game. Uh, Since newcomer Ryan Fitzpatrick suffered a hip injury in week one, he's not expected to return this season. Heineke 24th in the running backs don't matter QB composite, a little better than that in CPOE. And Washington's been below average on offense. They were 20th in DVOA coming into this week, but they're worse than that on defense where everyone was hyped over a defensive line led by Chase Young, who sadly was lost for the season to an ACL tear against the Buccaneers, but they're 27th overall on defense this season. So hopefully an opportunity for the Seahawks offense to get well. So how, how are they winning these games? They started out two and six. Now they find themselves at four and six. How are they beating a team like Tampa and Carolina in back-to-back weeks? The aristocrats. (laughs) I, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know the answer to that. I mean, the offense uh, was the defense has played more to I think the expectations that people had of them coming into the season in the last two weeks would be the the biggest thing. I think Taylor Heineke has been pretty dang good these last couple of weeks. I mean, you look at the the game against Tampa, going against one of the better defenses in the NFL, twenty six of thirty two for two hundred fifty six yards, was sacked five times in that game, but still only six incompletions that happened. And then this last week, another really efficient game from Taylor Heineke, who seems like. I don't want to say that he's put it together necessarily, but has been playing much better than he was earlier in the season against Carolina. Uh, he was 16 of 22 for 206 yards and three touchdowns and just a monster catch in the end zone by Terry McLaurin, who, if you were playing against him in fantasy, uh, you were very annoyed about his performance. So, and the other thing I, is he, he hasn't turned the ball over. Like you look at the three games that Washington, four games that they've won with him as the starter, he's thrown one interception in those four games. In the other uh, seven games that he's, or this, the other six games that he's played, the other five games that he started, he's thrown eight interceptions. So in this one, he'll throw what is clearly an interception. Oh no. And then they will call it an incomplete pass. What a rough ba- break for bless Austin. <sighs> Uh, but de- definitely playing better in these last couple of weeks for Washington. And, you know, we haven't watched it closely enough to understand exactly how that's happening, but it does seem like the type of receptions that Seattle has had a little bit of difficulty with. And I mean, McLaurin is, you know, given the quarterbacks that he's been playing with the last few seasons has established himself as a really good receiver. And if Taylor Heineke is going to be efficient and not making bad throws, that's a dangerous place to be for the Seahawks defense. So Taylor Heineke may be presenting more of a test than we were anticipating. Uh, the defense, on the other hand, you know, they lost Chase Young. The defense still wasn't playing very well uh, before then. It was one of those defense where it was like preseason. People looked at the all the pass rushers and they were like, whoa, how are teams going to deal with that? And it's sort of been like, well, this, this is the way it goes. You know, with, with pass rushers, sometimes it connects and sometimes it doesn't but the for the defense long term has not necessarily panned out it's a game where if the Seahawks offensive attack if Russell Wilson looks healthier uh, then they should be able to move the ball you would like their chances in this game we just don't know exactly which Russell Wilson we're going to see and I think my mild hot take about the Seahawks this is, this is only a hot take in, in stats world. I think the Seahawks have been missing Chris Carson. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe a little bit. I, I certainly do think you'd rather have Chris Carson than not have Chris Carson as a reason that he starts. I still think to the extent that their run game has been ineffective, it's more about the offensive line than it is who's carrying the ball. I, I understand. It's like the first game that he missed was the Rams game on Thursday night. Yeah, right when Russell Wilson got hurt. <laughs> so yeah, of course the offense looks worse since Chris Carson's been out. I, I just think with, with his ability to not be stuffed and to break tackles, he brings a different element than Alex Collins does or Rashad Penny or Travis Homer or DJ Dallas or Bo Scarborough. Like, that, or Marshawn Lynch. The, like, <laughs> I mean, that, that episode 189 was us hoping for Marshawn to come out of retirement. And we got him. We got him. Mission accomplished. Hang the banner. The, but I think it's been a little bit of a factor in you know putting them in better positions to do better at those third downs that they've been shockingly bad at. Like, I, I think there's a slightly different element there. Is it mostly about Russell Wilson? Of course. Is it mostly about the offensive line? Of course. But like there is a small percentage, maybe it's 10% that is also missing Chris Carson. You're starting running back. It makes sense. Given all that chances of victory for Monday night. I'm, I'm going to remain an optimist until I'm forced otherwise and crack and curse be damned. <laughs> 58%. I mean, I'm reason, reasonably optimistic about this one individually. Seahawks generally play well in, in night games. There's a track record statistically that teams traveling West to East have an advantage or just West coast teams in general playing East coast teams in night games have an advantage because of the of time zones. So you factor that all in some regression to the mean from Russell Wilson. I'd, I'd give him a 55% chance of victory. We're on the same page here. All right. Well, on that note, I thought you're not going to do the Thanksgiving thing. I thought you were going to do it. No, no, you did the whole thing last time, like the community oh, and stuff like that. I, I forgot about that. <laughs> On version 1.0 of this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. As we head into Thanksgiving, I want to say how thankful I am for you, the listener. We've really built an awesome community. It's been fun. We've hung out with several of the listener in recent weeks, and it's been great to share the inside jokes and everything, like this cracking curse that everybody takes to new and different levels wait uh, you were joking about that no no of course not yeah. okay no that turn into their memes of their own so it's it's really been awesome to see the development of this community over the last hundred episodes and, and beyond on that note happy thanksgiving thanks for listening